Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, a lot going on out there in the world. Lots of shootings and other chaos and just absolutely abysmal coverage of seemingly everything in the media. If ever we needed a sign that journalism was broken, my God, some of the stories we're telling ourselves now. But rather than get pulled into that morass, I will press on here, but I'll be doing some more AMAs. That might be the context in which to process a lot of this topical stuff. We're bringing AMAs back on the podcast, and the way to submit questions, if you're a subscriber, uh, you can submit questions by sending an email to asksam at samharris.org, or you can do this on Twitter with the hashtag AskSam. And uh, we will gather questions, and I will release AMAs on those topics. And again, we'll only be selecting questions from actual subscribers. Whether you're paying for that or it's free, doesn't matter, but you need to be a subscriber. Okay. Today I'm speaking with James Fadiman. Jim is a psychologist who has degrees from Harvard and Stanford. He's also taught at four different universities and has had a very long-standing influence on the topic of psychedelics. He is one of the early researchers here and is probably more responsible than anyone for the phenomenon of microdosing. He's written several books, most relevantly here, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He also has a new book on the structure of the self that he co-authored with Jordan Gruber, titled Your Symphony of Selves. And in today's conversation, we cover the terrain in both those books to some degree. The first half is entirely on psychedelics, how to think about taking them, who should take them, who shouldn't take them, considerations of set and setting, the role of a guide, the effects of microdosing, the difference between MDMA and other proper psychedelics, so-called good and bad trips, the power of thought, and then we move on to a discussion about the nature of the self and the fiction of there being a unified self. And so we talk about the self in its multiple forms, as states of self and even multiple selves, per se, and how all this might relate to compassion and an understanding of and acceptance of what we are as people. Anyway, if this is your cup of tea, Jim is a very wise companion for this terrain. Apologies for the audio quality. This was one of those conversations during COVID where the local recording failed so all we had in the end was the backup recording of the actual Zoom conversation. So there are some dropouts on Jim's side. Everything of importance is intelligible, but the audio is certainly less than ideal, though I think your ear will get used to it. And now I bring you James Fadiman. I am here with James Fadiman. Jim, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure. 
we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out our where our mutual history intersected. I, I, I'm about 95% sure that you and I once met face-to-face, at least once, and I'm sure we know many people in common, but and perhaps we'll, we'll get there um, organically, but perhaps you can summarize your background here. How do, you, how do you describe what you've focused on low these many decades that you've been covering the topics we're about to touch? Well, I got involved in uh, psychedelics before I entered graduate school because Richard Alpert turned me on. I was living in Paris writing a very bad novel. Mm-hmm. And my draft board said, would you like to go to graduate school or Vietnam? And uh, I took the obvious choice and then worked with a clinical group in Menlo Park. And just as I had completed my dissertation on psychedelic therapy, and by the way, they, I said it, it was good, the government said, we don't want to know anything more, thank you very much, and uh, closed us down in the midst of a, uh, a research project where people were using psychedelics to solve absolutely linear, rational, physical, scientific problems. And then I had another few careers uh, outside of psychedelics, since the government didn't want us to know much. And a number of years ago, got back involved in psychedelic research, particularly in microdosing. And in between, I've worked with and taught a number of, of, of psychology systems or you know life-changing systems like affirmations psychosynthesis and uh, recently just completed a book on internal healthy multiplicity which was um, apparently from the outside like where did that come from given what i just told you i've been working on that quietly for 25 years and finally uh, got it out so i'm at a place of feeling a lot of life ambitions, perhaps, or inclinations or directions are in a completed state. So I have mm-hmm. uh, a couple of turns left and a lot of things I'm intending to do. And it's a pleasure to, to be with you. And, and several of my relatives are very excited because they are <laughs> long-term fans of yours. And I'm a short-term fan of yours. Nice. Well, the, the the admiration is mutual. I found your book, uh, your books, uh, very useful and illuminating. And I, w- I want to cover them somewhat systematically here. I, mean, I think that the focus will be on this first book that that um, not your first book, but this first book I want to touch the the psychedelic explorer's guide. And I want to have a fairly structured conversation that can be useful to people who are. Thinking about taking psychedelics, uh, are they are taking them, and uh, how that can be done safely? You know, who who should do it, who shouldn't do it? Uh, you know, all the related questions here, and then we can happy to do those. Yeah, and, and then we can touch your your latest book, which is titled "Your Symphony of Selves," which you wrote with co-author Jordan Gruber, and um, talking about you know just how you think about the self or selves, plural, and that could be interesting. But um, just, just to get a little more of your backstory, so, so when were you, you were, you did your graduate work at, at Stanford, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So you, you weren't at Harvard getting dosed by Richard Alpert and Tim Leary. How did you, how did you come to? No, I, I, uh, I was just before that, and they 
Richard, Richard, Dick Alpert and I had become friends. I was an undergraduate and I worked for a summer for him in a research project in California. So, and we actually shared a house. So mm -hmm. uh, we were, we were really genuine friends and I was living in Paris, truly writing uh, a novel. And he showed up on his way to Copenhagen, where he was to present with Aldous Huxley and Tim Leary the first major presentation about psychedelics to the World Council of Psychologists. We met, and I took him to a little cafe on the... Richard Alpert and I are sitting there, and he's, he's really looking and feeling a lot, a lot less neurotic than I knew him to be. He was brilliant, neurotic, ambitious, charming, a lot of wonderful things. And he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, well, how bad can that be? And then he took out of his breast pocket a little bottle of pills, and I, I didn't freak out, but I certainly withdrew emotionally. I was so straight, I was not drinking coffee. But he said, here, try this. <laughs> so I, I took a a pill, which I now would say would be a moderate dose of psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was synthetic psilocybin. This is not the LSD, was, right? Yeah. So this was they had not they had not discovered LSD at this time. They started right. with psilocybin, and after a while, the uh, the colors got brighter and the everything began to you know jiggle a little with energy. And that was all new to me, and then I was also aware of the conversations behind me as people were walking by as one does. And then I suddenly realized that, that my French isn't that good, wasn't that mm -hmm. good. And I could never hear those conversations prior to this. And I, I looked at Dick and I said, this is really too much for me. And he said, well, why don't we go back to your hotel room? And uh, that was great. And he said, it's too much for me too. And I said, what do you mean? You haven't taken anything. He said, this is my first night in Paris. Mm -hmm. So we both withdrew to my sixth floor walk up and some of my cherished beliefs were disassembled about what was valuable and not valuable in my life. Nothing, nothing therapeutic breakthrough, but just a, an awareness that there was a more to the way the world was. But I was still me, and it was still my personality and my issues. And a week later, I had followed Dick to Copenhagen, and where I had another session with him, which was really about human closeness and connection and kindness and support of one another at a level that the words don't handle too well. If we had one more notch up in value of each of those words, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Life went on, and a few weeks later, I was at Stanford, and I discovered in one little tiny corner of Stanford a professor who was working with psychedelics and experience that has forever shifted my my awareness my belief system and also shifted my career so that's that's a little more backstory when would this have been around the early 60s 1961 mm -hmm. yeah 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 well it's uh yeah so i am sure that you and i met i with uh Richard Alpert, who was then uh, later known as Ramdas, at some point in the uh, in the late eighties, somewhere near somewhere Stanford. So, anyway, it's great to meet again. I, before we dive into this, I just want to offer the obligatory disclaimer to our listeners that you know we are not 
giving medical advice. We're not recommending that you personally take psychedelics. And we obviously, we don't know your personal situation, dear listener. So uh, you just have to read the lines and between the lines in this conversation to extract anything that might be useful to you in your specific situation. I mean, obviously, we're not going to um, soft pedal the underlying truth here, which is that psychedelics have been incredibly useful to, to each of us personally, and the resurgence of research on them uh, holds great promise for everyone, really. And it's, uh, it's one of the happier developments in, in recent years in psychological science. But uh, obviously, where most people are living, uh, these drugs are, are likely to be illegal and therefore you incur some risk just taking them, however benign your experience on them might be. And you know some people can have bad experiences, which we'll, we'll get into. So with that caveat out of the way, let's start with general considerations here, Jim. Who should and shouldn't think about taking psychedelics? <laughs> well, one of, obviously, the questions I get a lot over the years is, I'm thinking of taking LSD, but, and I say, don't do it. And they say, but I haven't told you my reasons. I said, no, if you feel there's a reason you shouldn't take a psychedelic, you have to listen to that. So my caveat is much stronger than yours, Sam, in that way. And the question of who and who shouldn't take it is only one that can be answered by an individual. I can tell you that if you read the literature, there's a lot of discussion about not having a psychedelic. These are all high-dose discussions we're having right now. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about microdosing yeah. later. Yeah, but for high doses, the science world says no one, not if you've had a psychotic episode, not if you've been a schizophrenic, not if you're bipolar, and not if you've had a serious mental, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I used to wonder about that, is where did we get that information? So I started searching around, and I asked some of the senior researchers who were friends. And the answer was, actually, there isn't any information like that out there. What there is, is people doing research don't want those people in the research. Because right. if they have a bad experience, or six months later, they have a bad experience that has nothing to do with psychedelics, they will blame it on psychedelics. Now, I follow this a little bit more with bipolar, because that's one of the groups that can never get in any research projects. And if you go online, of course, if you go to the web, of course, there's a group of people who are bipolar who talk to each other. And so I asked them, would you comment if any of you have had any psychedelic experience? Do you have any advice for the other people on this? this group. And the general advice was from people who had used psychedelics, and I don't know how and under what conditions, but they said on the manic phase of being bipolar, don't take anything. And on the depressive phase of bipolar, a number of them said that, that psychedelics had been very helpful. Mm -hmm. So that's not published and that's not science, but that's what I call citizen science which is what's actually happening out there. And it's important to keep, there are a lot of research studies and most of them are very favorable and exciting. But behind that, since psychedelics were made illegal in the late 60s, early 70s, 
in the United States and just the United States, 30 million people have tried high-dose psychedelics or just mm. LSD, not all psychedelics. And as of yet, we have, we have no deaths and we have a lot of people who had very unhappy and difficult experiences. But in some senses, it's a very safe. These are safe substances physiologically. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can have a terrible experience, even on a moderate dose. Mm -hmm. So the variable is having some understanding of what you are, you, what you're doing and what you're learning. And so uh, recommending or not recommending is not something I do, except to not recommend unless you know what you're doing. Yeah, this is a, a bit of a conundrum, however, because even very experienced psychonauts, as you know, can feel significant trepidation when thinking about taking a high dose of anything. I mean, it's just that even knowing what you're in for, uh, even having experiences under your belt that you consider to be not only benign, but incredibly transformative, you still approach this howling abyss with the appropriate awe and concern, you know, often. And I mean, so even someone as, as seasoned as Terrence McKenna would, would talk about the feeling of fear he would live with around this consideration of whether he should trip again. And so if your prescription or non-prescription is, if you feel any hesitation about doing this, don't do it, it's a little hard to apply. <laughs> well, um, that's probably why I put it out there, because it gives people a hesitation. And, and the image that came to mind, as you were saying it, is, is skydiving. Mm. No matter how many times you skydive and how carefully you check your gear, you know that sometimes people fall out of the sky and, and, it does, and the chute doesn't open. And it's not a matter of skill or experience. It's a matter of the facts are that these, these substances will take you places you do not intend. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason why I've backed off from high dose work and high dose research because it can be it can always be not only a scary experience which is fine people you know pay a lot of money to be frightened uh, if you've ever been to what's called an amusement park but the question of benefit is really where i'm i'm looking at i'm not really that interested in people who are kind of are tripping because their streaming service is down. I'm very interested <laughs> in people who are saying, I really want to learn something important that will perhaps change my life, and therefore I'm preparing appropriately. Mm. Yeah, I should say, I've said before, that I didn't take any psychedelics for at least 25 years based on the kinds of concerns we, we've just sketched here. I mean, just, just a, a growing awareness of what a colossal spin of the psychological roulette wheel it was, and having had some scary experiences, uh, I decided I, you know, I, I, meditation was was a much more governable game, and so I, you know, I, it wasn't until very recently, about a little over a year ago, that I, I had uh, my first in several decade significant trip, which I found incredibly useful, but. This kind of seriousness of intent that should frame this project 
is worth emphasizing because there really is a distinction between a recreational approach to these things. I mean, you're just bored and you want to have fun, uh, and you might do this at a party or do it at a, at a concert or, you know, when under conditions where those things exist. I mean, obviously, we're having this conversation during the COVID pandemic, and there's not a lot of either of those things, but people tend to approach this frivolously, and it's not that, you know, that doesn't, certainly doesn't guarantee a bad experience. You can have a great experience doing that, but it's not really the appropriate orientation in my view, and it sounds like you agree, Jim. It's just that there really is, these are incredibly powerful tools. Well, as, as my favorite kind of what, why you have to, why recreational, it may be a little more risky than you think, is my kind of young people who said to me once, we were having this fabulous trip until the car caught on fire. <laughs> that really shifted everybody's reality in a way that they weren't able to cope. So we're really looking at something, and, and actually in terms of my being conservative, and it's wonderful that psychedelics have moved so far that I'm conservative, is if you're going to have a high-dose experience and you intend to get anything from it, it's very important to have a guide, a companion, a, a designated mm -hmm. driver, so to speak, somebody who knows more than you do and cares about you. That turns out to be a way of preventing almost all strongly negative experiences. Because when you're caught in a negative experience and you're on your own or you're with other people who are off on their own trips, it's very hard to get out. Yeah. When there's a guide, it's very easy to get out. Well, so let, let's talk about that, each of this in, in chapters. So yeah, I want to talk about the role of a guide here, but this section might be called set and setting. How do you recommend, and again, we're, we're talking about large effective doses here, not microdoses, which we'll talk about later. How do you think about people preparing for a, a significant trip, whether it's, you know, psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca, or we, we can talk about specific compounds in a moment. How do you think about these, the concept of set and setting? Well, what we know is that psychedelics are incredibly sensitive to set or your mental attitude and setting the literally physical situation you're in. And that includes the other people who are around. And the main reason that I wrote that book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, is for the first two chapters, which detail how to become a good journeyer, how to be how how to do how to set yourself up the best way possible, and also how a guide should behave and and what what knowledge they should have, because it's not a simple question. But fundamentally, the question is always, do you feel safe? Is it truly safe? Is it private so you won't be disturbed? And do you have some idea of what you, do you understand the substance? Do you understand what the, the doses are, are like? And do you have some intentions? And perhaps that's what set is about, which is what do you intend? And it is likely that you will have what you intend, but you'll have something else that goes with it. So all of those are important. And I think the way I've said it is it's set and setting and situation, which is what's your life situation. If your life situation is very difficult, 
even if you're in a lovely set and setting, it's not going to, your life situation is going to impinge on that and you're going to be in trouble. Mm. What's the substance? Do you know what you're taking? If you bought it illegally, have, has it been tested? The, the word I use then is sitter, but because I'm actually trying just to use S's because you do that when you write books. But a, a sitter is almost like a coach, and a coach doesn't bother you unless something is needed to be helped. So if you, for instance, you, you're lying on a couch, you have music, you take off the headphones, you sit up and you said, I think I'm dying. And you do. You think you're dying, and everything in your in your mind is telling you that. And the guide, friend, sitter looks over at you and said, oh, that's great, and reaches out his hand or her hand. And part of you says, wait, 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 wait. I just said I'm dying, and, and this person who I know and love says it's great. And then another part of you said, oh, I took this substance, and it's taking me in a, in a different and." I'll just see what, what actually is being said by the notion that I'm dying. And what people then find out, and this is more on reflection later, is as your ego is noticing that it's about to be demoted from amazingly important to something that is useful, it often will come up with these amazing scenarios of what a bad idea it is for the rest of yeah. you to discover the correct placement or the correct kind of uh, status of your of your so-called identity. Remember, Alan Watts had a wonderful comment as he would look in the mirror and he'd say, what percentage of me has ever heard of Alan Watts? If you just look <laughs> at yourself physiologically, the answer is a tiny amount of your brain has to do with your identity and the rest of it really has other other preoccupations. So that's part of what I'm suggesting is why preparation is important. Do you want to say any more about the role of a guide? I mean, can, can a guide be simply any well-intentioned person who's not tripping along with you, or does well, it require some special experience? Well, the fact of the matter is that most people do not have access to highly trained, sophisticated guides who participated in research studies, etc., so the reality of it, what my opinion or not, is that very kind, loving people who've had prior psychedelic experiences that are positive often can be very healthy, safe guides. Hmm. Again, the, the term is close to designated driver where uh, you don't need someone who is an auto mechanic and a race car driver to be your designated driver. You need someone who has control of their feelings and emotions, is physiologically sound, and who knows how to drive. Right. So it would be, there is a whole class of people known as guides. According to Michael Pollan, in his work for his book, he says there are hundreds of them across the country. There is even an international guild of guides, which has been formed in the Netherlands. So there is an occupation where you can actually, in many locations, find people who will, who have a lot of experience in sitting with people. Mm. And so that's, that's a kind of in-between place. And I was struck a few years ago in Berkeley on a, you know, on a power pole, there was stapled a little, little notice. It said trip sitter, mm -hmm. which is someone who will sit with you while you are tripping. And it basically gave a phone number 
And this was someone who you could hire to come to your house and sit with you. So we are creating a, a, a kind of new occupational grouping here of people who know not only a lot more than you do, but consider it, consider it usually more than a vocation to help you. And I guess a final question on setting. How do you think about the difference between taking one of these compounds, let's say LSD or psilocybin, out in nature or you know with, with senses directed outward versus an, an internal journey, whether you're blindfolded or just in, in a dark room? Well, I think it's the, it's the same discussion you have about mysticism. Is there there's internal mysticism where you go inside and you find that everything in the universe is inside, or you go outside and you find that everything in the universe is outside. The difference is that if you have if you're interested more in your own psychodynamics and you have say therapeutic intentions, probably you will do better staying inside where you are less literally likely to be distracted by the the amazing beauty of the 10,000 things. If you wish to blend more, to become more aware of your continuity with the natural world, then outside is fantastic and will give you a, a recognition of your continuity with the natural world that is not that you don't lose, you don't forget. Now let's talk about dosage, and, and here we can, we can talk about microdosing as well. And Am I right in thinking that you're, you're essentially the father of microdosing at this point? I think at the moment I'm probably the, the, the person who has the, the largest number of, of cases in his, in his research base mm-hmm. and has talked the most about it uh, and is probably the most quoted. There's a generation of researchers coming up fast behind me and will soon push me aside. But for right now, yeah, I'm, prob- I'm probably the, the, the most, the most well-known and person and has done and has, has reported on microdoses in ways that other people haven't. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So well, that, was, that was a walk around uh, what, what was an attempt at humility, and I think it okay. failed. <laughs> uh, well, you're going to have to boost the dosage then, I think, Jim. <laughs> that's always that's ne- not necessarily always the best suggestion. Right. Sam. <laughs> so um, let's differentiate these two projects because they really are distinct. So let's talk about macro dosing first. Yeah, yeah, let me just go right up the line. Sure. And let's let's start at around 25 micrograms where people report some psychedelic effects very mild um, of, of L- 50, lsd of the, we're just talking lsd and i'll do it in micrograms okay around 50 micrograms is a what was called originally a museum dose and now is called a concert dose mm-hmm. um, and if you've ever wondered when you go to a concert why there's that unbelievably huge light show it's because such a large percentage of the patrons have come intending to get as much out of the light show as the music. And that maybe is 50 to 100. At 100 micrograms, one can do very hard-nosed scientific research. And there's a great many companies around the world, some of which admit to it, where a number of breakthroughs are attributed to working in that way with that dosage. 
when you get into the 100 to 200 microgram range, it's uh, psychotherapeutic, which is you can work with a therapist somewhat the way the therapist wants to, meaning you're still in communication. You will trip off into kind of thought loops. If someone, if your therapist says, do you want to look, look at the death of your mother? 10 minutes later, you may return to the room and say, yes, thank you for, for that. I understand it much better and I understand my reactions. Once you go above 200 and up to say 400, then you're usually talking about what is called a transcendent or a mystical or a unity experience. That's when you lose your primary identification with your own physical identity and your own psychological identity. So you are no longer, if I'm in, in taking 400 micrograms, at some point, Jim Fadiman becomes a, a subset of the larger being that I feel myself to be. And in that state, people report things like experiencing the birth of the universe or physically their own birth or memories of past identities. It's what we called in an original report in the 60s, the psychedelic experience, mm. which is experiencing that your that your uh, Alan Watts said it nicely is you exist your body doesn't end at your fingertips and that is a revelation to people and on their return from that higher dose they often will see that parts of their own emotional physical social system are really defective and they make massive change i recall working with several alcoholics and they were uh, referred by the court. So they were not exactly eager to have a psychedelic experience. This is the early 60s, and all of this was not known. And each one of them, a week later, went out and drank, and then came back to us and said, what have you done to me? And we said, you know, we gave you a psychedelic. And they said, but I don't like drinking. It doesn't hmm. feel good. It feels like it shrinks my, my, my expanded awareness. So. There's a wonderful bit of, of video footage from some work done at Spring Grove Hospital again in the late 60s. And this was 40 years later, one of these overnight recovered alcoholics. And the filmmaker is saying, well, can you talk about your drinking? He says, I haven't had a drink in 40 years. And the filmmaker talks about willpower. And the man laughs and says, it has nothing to do with willpower. I've never had any interest in drinking ever since. Hmm. So a high dose or a mystical experience level dose has a number of additional effects that will not be found at lower doses. And that's pretty much all the way down. That The 200, the psychotherapeutic dose, you have things will happen at a lower dose, et cetera. Does that, does that answer? Well, yeah, what's, what do you consider an analogous dose of, of mushrooms? and or synthetic psilocybin well yeah in the couple of thousand cases i have we have i think one person with synthetic psilocybin so that's interesting it's, it's um well i guess it, it's coming back now right into the in the research but it's not well it's something... coming back because there are a lot of people who can make money from it mm. it's coming back in the research because researchers 
who who come out of a psychopharmacology model want something that's as close to a normal psychologically active substance as possible and they love to have accurate measurement even though the amount a person should take should be based on what the person actually needs not on their weight or mm. uh, their age it's it's a little bit as if people came in for meals and you all gave everyone the exact amount of each food carefully measured and they said but hey i i want more potatoes and they say no the study says mm. everyone has to have the exact amount of potatoes so i have obviously some biases about some of the scientific research even the best of it but what we're looking at with psilocybin is three to five grams of mushroom will give you a a fairly expansive trip people have taken much more than that and at some point they they stop bringing back useful information and so in my world that's what too much of a dose is each mushroom has its own level its own, its own amount of psilocybin even if you have mushrooms from the same same little patch mm -hmm. the same species they'll be different uh, so it's much harder when you get into natural substances and for example what i know is and with in ayahuasca the ayahuasquero the the shaman who is who's doing the uh, giving the medicine whether they're trained in south america or or one of the hundred or so in los angeles they'll give you what they think is a good amount and then later on they will give you more if that seems to be useful now how much is a good amount okay it's a quarter cup it's a half cup they're using their clinical their kind of intuitive knowledge rather than uh, a scale so once you get into organics it's much harder to say what's the right amount mm -hmm. when, you, when you get into microdosing it's much easier the question of dose has always been subjective and the people that i worked with clinically i gave you those numbers uh, but let me let me show you how it works 400 micrograms is an amazing amount of psychedelic however when you have an alcoholic and you give them 400 micrograms and an hour and a half later they're walking around the room and saying man something's going on but i don't feel comfortable and what are you guys doing anyway anyone else at that point is on the couch voluntarily asking for headphones and a blindfold because the input is so overwhelming well when you add to the alcoholics cocktail another 400 micrograms so they're now taking 800 micrograms which i don't recommend to anybody hmm. they settle down and again behave exactly the way everyone else does on a much lower dose and i looked at that for a long time I actually studied uh, alcoholism and, and why most treatments don't work and what I realized with psychedelics is alcoholics have learned and have a physiology that cooperates to handle very large doses of substances that distort consciousness. So they're, in a sense, their ability to hold on and to hang on to their defenses is far more developed than for the rest of us. So mm -hmm. I'm dancing around the dosage question because 
it's not quite the appropriate question. The appropriate question is what is the correct amount for this person on this day for this intention? And that, of course, is an individual question. Is there anything in your mind that significantly differentiates the experience on a high dose of LSD versus a high dose of psilocybin? That is mushrooms in, in most cases. Well, the feeling in the <laughs> the underground who takes a lot more drugs than I do is that psilocybin is a kinder experience. It's a more emotionally gentle experience. Mm. And that's partly, it is said, because there is a plant spirit behind it. LSD is considered a little colder, a little more powerful. It doesn't let you off easy. And I know these are all very vague terms, unless you know what I'm talking about. My research associate, uh, Dr. Sophia Korb, at one point set up a little bot and it asked the little bot to say, here's a hundred reports from Irwid about psilocybin experiences. Here are a hundred reports of LSD experiences. Can you, this little learning bot, distinguish the two if you, if you can't be told which substance it is? So it kind of blinded artificial intelligence. Hmm. And the AI a robot said, no, I actually can't tell the difference between those experiences. There's another group of people who are saying the difference between a synthetic psilocybin and a mushroom is also a great difference. And that is also not yet particularly, um, we don't know quite what that means, but it's probably true since a mushroom has a whole nother set of alkaloids in it. So it should have a slightly different effect than just the psilocybin molecule. Mm. Yeah, but one obvious difference is just the time course of the trip. A LSD trip lasts uh, about twice as long as a mushroom trip. Okay, that's, that's important because that's one of the reasons that the research has gone the way it has. Mm. One of yeah. the questions is, with the psychedelic renaissance, why are most of these studies psilocybin? Why not LSD? Because with LSD, we have couple of thousand research papers, you know, to start with. And I asked one of the senior researchers, and this is, this is, I, this comes on as a little ridiculous, but it's actually quite subtle and sensible. He said, there are th several reasons. One is psilocybin will give the same experience, but in a shorter amount of time, four to six hours, LSD eight to 12. If you're working with someone eight to 12 hours in a research setting, that's two shifts of personnel. That doubles your personnel cost. So there's a, a motive. I said, there's two things about psilocybin. One is it's not called LSD, mm -hmm. meaning it doesn't, there's not a lot of press about it, not a lot of research, not a lot of, not a lot of negative press from the 60s. Yeah. The other, and this is my favorite, is psilocybin's hard to spell. Right. And what they're saying is that just because it's more it sounds more like a scientific term, people are more comfortable with it. Hmm. Uh, which makes me wonder why there isn't more research on DMT because that's that's over in fifteen minutes, and uh, dimethyltryptamine is also hard to spell. DMT is not. <laughs> on DMT, have you do you have experience with? Um, pure DMT as opposed to DMT is the one of the active ingredients in ayahuasca as well. But 
That's a very different experience, apparently. Do you have the smokable, very short-acting experience or the injectable, very short-acting experience? Although I may now lose at least half of your audience, I have not a great many experiences, and I don't seek out new substances to experience. Mm. It's kind of like people who like wine. Some people like wine to drink. Some people like wine to find interesting, difficult, rare, amazing wines. The question always for me is, what is the take-home value? Now, that that's a little bit as if someone, I say, well, you went to a concert. What's the take-home value? They said, don't be ridiculous. I went to the concert for the, the being there at the time. Well, I have nothing nothing wrong with that, and I, of course, do the same thing. But because of my background, I probably take psychedelics more seriously than most people. So the question of, of all these different substances and all these different forms doesn't, it, it doesn't resonate. And, and I remember when I was sending out little, I gave a talk at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz some years ago, and I asked each of the people there to fill out a little form. What's your best trip? What's your worst trip? Why did you come here tonight? And what have you used? And these were all undergraduates. And there was one young man who had tried 24 different psychedelic substances. And I thought, he probably doesn't get much out of it. He's a collector of, 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 of having done experiences. Hmm. And that's very different. The other side of that, the other way of arguing that is the, the notion is, and this is, I think, from Jean-Paul Sartre or Camus, which is when you ask God a question and he answers it, you hang up the phone. Right. So for a lot of people, they say, well, I, I, I learned what psychedelics had to teach me and my interest then diminished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's... um. It certainly resonates with me. I mean, I, I certainly felt that for 25 years, and, and this is not something that I imagine doing with any frequency at high doses, certainly. But you know, I've never taken ayahuasca. I've never smoked DMT. And I, and I just, hearing about the phenomenology of those experiences, it, they sound like they are, are certainly opening different doors in the, the mansion of the mind. And I'm I do feel like I can attest to a somewhat significant difference between psilocybin and LSD at higher doses. What you said about the difference does resonate with me. There's always, there's, LSD has a kind of metallic quality to it compared to psilocybin. That, not to say that it's bad, but it's, it is different. And then, then of course, there's the there's MDMA, ecstasy, which is not classically a psychedelic, which in terms of take-home value, you know, has offered a tremendous amount to people. Where do you put MDMA in this conversation? Well, the reason MDMA, there are two reasons MDMA isn't a psychedelic. One is biochemical, which is, a, the other is that you do not go beyond yourself, your psyche, hmm. out the experience. Only you're you in an incredibly inner safe place where all the parts of you that are awful to consider or terrible events or traumas or worse, you can objectively look at and move them from the part of your brain that holds them as terrible trauma 
and disturbs or destroys your life and puts them into conventional memory where you can remember that you did terrible things, but it doesn't dominate your present. So it's a totally different set of experiences. And however, the way it's given is exactly the way we developed it in the 60s with the, the, the comfortable room and the music and the headphones mm. and the male and female guide all of which are to make it easier for people to look at traumatic experience. If you give the same person a very, very high dose of LSD, they will, they will pass right through the trauma area and have perhaps, again, one of these transcendent experiences, which may or may not affect the trauma. We haven't really done that kind of research. So MDMA, in a sense, is psychologically less threatening because you don't go beyond your own identity mm. and that that's a real, real difference actually this brings up an, an interesting point about which there may be research that i'm unfamiliar with but just based on my own experience it's often felt to me that not taking enough of a psychedelic is as much of a risk factor in determining having a bad trip We'll talk about good and bad trips next, but um, you know, here we're talking about dosage, not taking enough, not not achieving you know escape velocity of some kind, can doom you to an unpleasant experience as much as taking too much. If if taking too much is in fact a liability, I mean, there's, I've had trips where it's felt like I took just enough to have in my ordinary mental reality good and scrambled, or, or I, I took just enough to be given an unusual mental energy with which to fixate on my psychological problems, but not given enough to fly clear of them for any span of time. And so the net result was there was a something considerably more than a microdose that potentiated my capacity for unhappiness. and. <laughs> I believe I believe I've noticed this from both sides because you know I've had trips where you know I've gone you know very far out well beyond any personal reference point to my life and my psychology and then it's only upon reentry you know as I'm coming down that you, know, you begin to punch into the atmosphere of, of the familiar and begin thinking about your life is it that strata of the mind that there's a sort of a new capacity for chaos and complication and neurosis. You're doing kind of a oh, commercial for guides at this mm, point. Yeah. Look at that particular event that happens in a high dose, which is you have found that you are uh, immortal or that you are one with whatever your religious tradition teaches you is the highest, or you've gone past that into feeling that, that everything is interconnected and it's all the same stuff. And then you come down and you find that there you are, there you are, a kind of middle-aged physician in a difficult marriage, and one of your kids is, has some kind of illness and you have economic problems and you love kite surfing. That person can, a with a little about. bit of... <laughs> 
right into the heart of their issues coming down than they could coming up. And uh, one of the methods that, that we used when we're doing this clinical work, this was with a couple of hundred people, is we asked them to bring in important photographs. Again, notice this is visual. We also asked them to have a list of questions, and I'll mention that. But we asked them to bring in important photographs, and this usually would be of, of important human beings in their lives. And we would say, would you like to look at your photographs? And they would look at us like, what's a photograph and who are you? But then you hand them a photograph and say, it's their, it's their spouse. Now, again, these are trained guides. And what do they do? They do nothing. The person looks at this photograph, and they may look at it for a minute and put it aside. They may look at it for 45 minutes. And then they say, okay, I'd like another photograph. And you don't know what's gone on, but when they write a report a few weeks later, you find out they spent a huge amount of time therapeutically reworking a lot of their issues around that particular person. So it's a method of depth psychological work without form, without vocabulary, and without theory. That was, we also gave them a, a, a rosebud, a rose just starting to open, and almost every religious tradition that had access to roses makes them an important either symbol or active force. And we found, again, that people would have an experience of working with a living, expanding, beautiful piece of nature that they felt was important. And again, people would take a long time just looking into that rose and indicating how it opened, and they went inside it, and how they became a rose, and how that, that made sense to them in their usual life. So as, as one comes down, but one is coming down aware that one is more than one's identity. And when you had those high experiences, Sam, the one thing, as you said, coming back into being you is always a little puzzling. Like, I'm part of everything there is. Why did I come back into a Sam Harris? Of all people. And that's often a moment where you then get an opportunity to say, probably I came back into the Sam Harris to clean him up a little bit so that he would get more benefit out of being in this lifetime. So... Let's talk about microdosing, which superficially seems like a similar project because, we, again, we're talking about taking LSD or psilocybin generally, but the dosage being dialed down as much as you're about to describe really does change things. What constitutes a microdose and, and what are people microdosing? <laughs> Well, I have to make this super clear. Imagine that microdoses have no psychedelic effect. So they are not a little bitty high. Mm. Maybe they're the difference between an M dial. You're still, you know, there's still radio frequencies, but the microdose is one tenth to one twentieth of what is called a recreational dose. With LSD, for the original work I did some years ago, we it was ten micrograms. That seemed to be an appropriate amount for people to have the experiences that I'll talk about a little bit more without having to stop or disturb their life. They had their normal day, normal activities, 
normal work, normal driving, normal time with their family, etc. The dose for mushrooms was about was then about 0.2 grams to 0.5 grams. Now, when I say the doses, again, what we found after you you get a few hundred reports is people say, gee, 10 micrograms was too much. I'm taking seven. 0.2 was too much. I'm taking one-tenth of a gram. What we found is that people would correct the dose, so to speak, for their own understanding and experience. And we also found in terms of taking it, how often, which is a huge difference between psychedelics and microdosing. Microdosing is done repeatedly. People found that after taking it one day on and two days off over a full month, that's about 10 times over a month, most people ended up taking it less often. So it looked like it was, it was not addictive, just as all other psychedelics. But whatever value it had, people seemed to, to gain basic benefits within the first month and then allow it to continue at its own pace. Now, what are basic benefits, okay? It's very hard to make this easy to understand, but Ailet Waldman did a book called A Really Good Day, and it's about her month of microdosing. And the best definition of microdosing that I've come across, again, from one of our people, is I did better work than I usually do. I made a few more cold calls that were successful. I had a few ideas in the meeting that I usually have no ideas. Uh, when I went to the gym, I did one more set of reps. And I enjoyed being with my family more than usual. And I forgot that I'd taken a microdose. Hmm. One never says at the end of a high-dose session, I forgot I took a psychedelic. Okay. Well, actually, that's not quite true. If, if, if it's a sufficiently high dose, you can completely forget you've taken a psychedelic, but then you eventually you remember as oh, you reality can right. be. When you've taken a sufficiently high mm -hmm. dose, you forget that you're a human being yeah. on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> because when you come down, you're very surprised to find out that that's true. And hopefully you're not attempting any reps at the gym. <laughs> no, let alone driving to it. Oh, so a microdose seems to improve the overall function of the organism. And I'm being kind of vague and scientific-y because there are so many people who've reported different benefits or different improvements in using microdosing that it's very hard to categorize. And we can look at, at some of the details of that as much as you wish. Mm. Yeah, I guess. So let me just give you some anecdotal experience here and, and then get your reaction. So I only have experience microdosing LSD. And so I guess first question is, is there any reason to differentiate the effects of taking psilocybin versus LSD? Or, or are they essentially indistinguishable? I mean, given, the, given that a microdose is as close to subliminal as you can get, um, I can't imagine there's much to say about the difference there. But Well, when I was giving the differences in kindness and coldness, I was actually quoting someone who said, in our microdose community in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. we've come to that conclusion that psilocybin is a little nicer. 
Interesting. The important question is how long is it effective? And this is where it gets interesting. We know that LSD has major effects 10 to 12 hours, and, and we all say as if that as if it stops at that point. We forget that with high doses, there's also what's called an afterglow of four to six weeks, where you feel better about everything in many ways and you're more creative and, and so forth. With microdosing, very early on, what I discovered was what I called a two-day effect, which is if it's psilocybin or LSD, there's at least a two-day effect. And a great many people say, I actually prefer the second day. It's better. So we're dealing with something which isn't distinguished in the easy sense of time. It may be distinguished in terms of its emotional warmth, but because you're taking it as part of your normal life, you'll, you know, if you feel better and you're more effective, it's hard to say, is that analytic or is that emotional? Hmm. It's simply that, my goodness, I hadn't noticed a way to work that little niche at the bank that always I'm walking to work, I look forward to the flowers, particularly on days when I microdosed. Yeah, as far as the emotional valence, as far as how microdosing might be recommended or contraindicated for any person, I can well imagine that microdosing would, ha would have antidepressant effects. It seems to increase arousal generally. It's, it, I mean, as you say, it, it, it kind of brightens your attention, and it would surprise me if it w wasn't functioning as a kind of cognitive enhancer and antidepressant, but I could also see that it might be contraindicated for somebody with any kind of anxiety disorder. I mean, it seems to me that there is a kind of anxiety-like valence sure. to mere arousal. Well, uh, I would say, Sam, as an N of one, you have hit on both of the most important aspects, positive and negative, that people are aware of. And mm -hmm. let, me, let me break that down. Let's look at depression. I'd say out of the first thousand reports we got, maybe 700 were people that said, I have suffered from depression for X years. I've taken four or five different antidepressants. I've done some therapies too terrible to discuss. Would microdosing help? And we write back and say, a lot of people have written to us, as you have, and they've reported that microdosing has been helpful. If it's helpful for you, let us know. About 80% of the people who, who write us and say, I'm interested in using it to either stop being depressed or to get over the fact that my antidepressant not only has no effect except to make me numb, but I can't get off it. And so people have used, used microdosing to help them, help them taper off of medications that are no longer effective or that they don't like. Mm. And about a uh, typical statement, and this is, is I, um, this is very often, so that's why I can say it, is, wow, I'm back. I'm myself again. Um, let me give you a detail. This is someone I know very well personally, and his, his uh, background story is 31 years on antidepressants. He was on two antidepressants at pretty high doses when he wrote me, and I said pretty much what I'm saying to you is you can try it and see if that helps. 
and it helped. And he went to his physician and said, I'd like to taper off my antidepressants. Will you help me? Yes. It took six months to get him off of all the antidepressants. And what he said is that microdosing allowed him to return to having a full emotional, a full emotional deck of cards, which he had not had for so long. He said, it's rather hard to know what to do with my emotions. It's been so long since I've had them. Hmm. So that's the depression side. The anxiety side is one of the things on our website called microdosingpsychedelics.com says contraindication is if your primary symptom is anxiety. What we found, and we have, we have no particular um, theory on this, is people who, who report anxiety either have more anxiety or they're more aware of anxiety. Mm -hmm. In either case, they find it very uncomfortable and they stop. So that's, that's the two big, big groups that we look at. And this is in the mental health group, mental illness group. We have a whole nother set of reports of people who are taking it from neutral to positive, and, and that's a different, a different discussion which we may get to. Mm. So does anyone microdose MDMA? Probably. But is, is, there, but is this something MDMA, that is looked at in any kind of systematic way, or I would imagine? MDMA is it's an amphetamine with a little extra a little extra atom or two added to it. Mm. So one of the reasons that people can dance all night with MDMA is they're getting the stimulant. The way we set up our research is since it's not a psychedelic, don't tell us. Mm. And, and most people have been very good about not telling us. But my, uh, the recommendation I have for, for people who work, who I know very well, clinicians who also worked in the Zendo, is it's pointless to use MDMA as a as anything therapeutic or beneficial beyond its its amphetamine base at that low dose. So the answer is not it's not a micro it's not a particular substance that one would microdose with. Now, mm. talking a little more esoteric about ayahuasca and ibogaine, ibogaine being used in the out of its native uses a lot for uh, helping people get off of very hard drugs. Microdosing afterwards, after a major session, a lot of people say that's valuable. And I, I asked a woman who had taken Ibogaine, and her problem had been that she had not had a good night's sleep since she was nine, not a decent night's sleep. She was like 50. And after Ibogaine, she slept normally. And I said, why are you taking a microdose? She says, I want to keep in touch with the plant. So that's a non-scientific mm -hmm. answer, but when you work with citizen scientists, you get, you get a lot richer uh, data often than you do otherwise. Back to the, just the question about MDMA, I, th I think there are still reasons to believe that M MDMA physiologically, as a matter of you know, uncertainty around neurotoxicity, is not as benign a substance as the other ones we've been talking about. I mean, there, there is no, as far as I know, there's no known lethal dose of LSD or psilocybin, or if, or if it exists, it's so far beyond an effective dose that no one nearly approaches it. There's been, there's certain research you would never do, but when something is desired and available in the culture, 
misuse will occur. Mm. What you would never do is say to someone, I'd like to give you five times what would be a sensible high dose of LSD just to see if there's any toxicity. You don't do that research. But a wonderful paper just came out of Canada about a year ago of three stories. One person had taken five times too much LSD, <laughs> another who'd taken about 50 times, and another who'd taken several hundred times an LSD dose. The people on the higher, the two higher doses were seen medically, and basically they were, they were out of it in a very fundamental way for a day to several days, and they recovered and apparently had no, no lasting damage. But in both of those two cases, they had had ongoing mental conditions, and in both cases, those conditions went away. So we do not recommend taking a massive overdose of LSD for some kind of mental illness, but what it suggested is that, psych that LSD at a very, very high dose was not physically harmful. Nobody says that about MDMA. Right. As you're saying, Sam, it's really a different, it's a different world. The fact that it's treated like a psychedelic and people who use it also use psychedelics is confusing to people on the outside. It's also confusing to people on the inside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let, let's talk about good and bad trips, you know, so-called good and bad trips. I guess uh, let's just deal with that framing up front. Do, do you, how do you view the, the goodness or badness of a trip being related to the axis of, of pleasantness or unpleasantness of a trip? Well, personally, I, I enormously prefer pleasantness, mm. and I enormously prefer, you know, tears of joy and ecstasy, and I don't really like, say, the misery of all the people currently dying on the planet right now. These are all frail experiences. Mm. But if I'm looking at what's the value, there's a fascinating bit of survey research uh, the John Hopkins people wrote a big questionnaire, and it was basically, tell us about your good, your best trip. And there were a lot of questions and a lot of lovely answers and all the things that, that you probably know about. And then they said, how important was your best trip? And it was a very important trip in their lives. They then, a year later, did the same questionnaire only about your worst trip. And people told all these terrible stories and these frightening stories and these upsetting stories. And then that question was, how important was it? And the, for the good trip, it was maybe, you know, among the, the, the top 10 experiences of their lives. For the bad trip, it was the same, practically the same number. That people felt, in retrospect, that they had learned as much on their worst trip as people said they learned on their best trip. Now that's a curious, you know, curious bit of, of information. Hmm. And then when you dig into it, what you find is that people's bad trip, they felt very much aware of what the bad trip was about. It was, in a sense, pushing their face into it to use an ungracious metaphor. Hmm. 
and that they therefore they have therefore had a lot of work to do after you've had a bad trip you do a lot of work after you have a wonderful trip you may not because the trip itself was just the benefits keep you know keep pouring in i think perhaps if you think about a very good relationship you had and a very bad relationship you had usually if you think back on the bad relationship you you begin you understood yourself in ways you hadn't intended to discover as you reflect and deal with the bad experience so the the word that that is now coming into use that i am now going to push is good trips and challenging trips hmm. challenging trips mean you were pressed to the wall on some parts of your psyche but one of the things we know is you survived and two is you report that you learned a lot and that you didn't have to do that again once again reasoning anecdotally from from my experience when i stopped taking any psychedelics you know around 25 years ago it was born of this the feeling that the so-called challenging trips had a little more liability than that because it's not that i wasn't didn't learn anything from them but one difference i felt i was detecting in myself between good and bad trips is that with with a good trip you know one, one whose whose valence was largely or or entirely pleasant you know ie ecstatic you know tears of joy versus tears of of anguish the net effect of the the afterglow of that was quite positive and quite significant and lasted for quite some time and there was a corollary negative afterglow of difficult trips right so they, if, if i had been dragged through hell by my ears and emerged uh somewhat wiser about something still the 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 harrowing experience having had that harrowing experience had a, a, a lasting consequence which just seemed neurologically undesirable I, I think i was more neurotic or more or, or less happy in terms yep. of my baseline state for quite some time after each of those trips and that that's why it just seemed to me like okay this is i don't know how many more times i'm up to for doing this whatever the other conceptual benefits there might be well again if you think of a bad relationship how long do you want to stay in it mm. well maybe this time when we get together we won't end up fighting well wrong again and at some point uh, you say to stop doing this because something isn't working a lot of people have said to me you know i stopped having psychedelics after a bad trip well from my point of view is that's a that's a kind of learning which is it's not appropriate for you now to be doing this and your psyche is trying to make it clear to you by dragging you through hell that this is that there's something not this isn't the the way you need to go at this point hmm. i i agree with you i think uh, the after effect of bad trips are are very real and very disturbing and very often depressing there's again this not only are there the psychedelic coaches on the front end but there's now the integration coaches on the back end and the integration coaches may be more important because they are not only asking you can we work through the difficulties of your, your bad trip because they're they're traumatic they're a, they're a trauma and you need to treat them as a trauma and work through them as a trauma but they're also a good integration coach 
will begin to tease out from your bad trip what did what did you need to learn what did you need to mm -hmm. to get and one of the things that you may learn you may have needed to get is stop taking psychedelics mm -hmm. i have a little comment in my book that that people prefer to skip over which is it's now a month after you've had a wonderful psychedelic experience and you say well i think i'd like to do that again as soon as possible and i say don't do that what you're really saying is there's some personal work that i need to do that the psychedelic brought up and i want not to have to do the work i want to escape back into the non-ego state that was such a pleasure it's a good hint that you might have if you're feeling the need to have another psychedelic experience you may be setting yourself up for a bad one hmm. one phenomenon here which many people will have experienced is that the one can have a, a good trip and a bad trip in the same trip right so like the, the plasticity of the experience the the way in which the the mind can shift weather states dramatically and quickly is quite impressive. I'm wondering what you think about these dynamics and what advice you could give to anyone who might be in a position to take advice in the middle of a of a trip which is becoming quite unpleasant. How do you think about shifting one state at that point, whether we're talking about the whatever course correction could be offered by a guide or by the person himself. One variable here for me is is resistance. It seems to me that often the recipe for a bad trip is to be resisting the tremendum that is that is pouring into consciousness of whatever sort and the the, the recipe for a good one is to find that clenched fist of resistance and release it, right? So it's not so much a matter of trying to control the phenomenon, because that is altogether hopeless. If one can control anything, it's one's posture with respect to this onrushing of sensory and, and inward experience. The problem for, for many people, and this really is the, the posture of of the ego is in the presence of, of something terrifying or just altogether too much, the first inclination is to try to hold on. You're looking for a handhold or a foothold to resist your slide into this thing. And it's that very effort, that resistance that be becomes the, the framework of self-torture. The core of a bad trip is exactly as you've expressed since. It is something has come up and you are trying to get back away from it rather than go towards it. And it's kind of standard fairy tale mythology, discovering that the, the dragon is actually protecting the treasure until you arrive. And is, if they can scare you away, then you're not the right person. So a bad trip, and this is, again, where coaching uh, makes a huge difference because a, a trip will almost always have some dark passages. And when you're in a dark passage, if you can do something like wave your hand a little bit 
and a human being puts their hand in yours, there's a shift that happens. And it's a shift to a different self, meaning there's a, diff a totally different way of approaching the same moment, the same image. Mm. And the, the other ways are, and people understand this, is you change the music. The music will direct the mind remarkably well. And when you change music, as you know, when you change music in normal consciousness, it's, you say, gee, I'm down, I'm in a place, I'm whatever you like. And you put it on and you go, nah, I'm feeling a lot better. You know, whenever I put on the Beatles, even if I'm down, part of me feels good. So we know to use music. Also, if people are really having a very hard time, if they are in a, a dark, quiet space, if they can go out in nature, that will make, they'll shift. And again, lots of ways that people can shift out of these dark places because they're not as useful, in, in my mind, as good places. Hmm. That I find in the long run that learning through learning through more joy and more openness and uh, more loving has a much greater long-term effect on your life than struggling with negativity. No one ever says, I struggle. You know, when I'm in love, I struggle against it. Yeah. It's inherently desirable. And what you want to do when you're in a bad trip is make a shift into the inherently desirable. And that's, that's where coaches are invaluable. And again, friends are equally invaluable. Yeah, and this is actually the point of contact that I think is useful to to flag between the psychedelic experience and meditation or you know the contemplative experience more generally right. because it's you know well understood by anyone who goes deeply into into any practice of meditation that ultimately it's not about changing the character of experience you're not trying to maximize pleasure by meditating and you're, and you're not trying to avoid the unpleasant aspects of mind, you know, you might be trying that, but that is, the logic of that project is actually part of what's causing you to pendulum swing between happiness and sadness, you know, in ordinary life so much. And what you're actually trying to do is recognize an intrinsic freedom of consciousness that that is available no matter what's arising, whether they're good thoughts or ugly thoughts or pleasant sensations in the body or unpleasant ones. And you're trying to drop back into that just mirror-like wisdom that is a prior position of, of freedom with respect to, to anything that might appear in your mind. And on some level, the psychedelic experience is orthogonal to all that because by its very nature, ingesting a whopping dose of LSD or psilocybin is guaranteed to change the contents of consciousness drastically. And that is, in fact, the point of the exercise. I mean, you wouldn't be doing it if, you, if it were going to not change anything. But if you can find that place of you know, just mere awareness you know, and, and mere acceptance of whatever's appearing in the context of you know, the full pyrotechnic glory of you know 400 micrograms of LSD or you know 5 grams of 
mushrooms, it's an amazing proof of the concept. What, what experience can be that extreme and your freedom is is really not dependent on its character. I mean, you can have experiences where it's it's not even clear whether you're experiencing agony or ecstasy, and it doesn't matter, right? It's just the volume is turned all the way up, and its valence is irrelevant. And it's to, to be able to find that place in your mind is, at that point, part of what you're, you're learning is possible. But I, I don't know if you have thoughts about the connection between meditation and psychedelics are what long-term meditators have said is that it's very useful in the middle of a psychedelic experience to simply go into that same meditative capacity that's a meditative place where you're observing and indeed you're observing with the volume way up but then you're observing with the volume way up and just as in meditation what you what you learn, whether you very quickly that directing it is nonsense, but what you learn is thoughts arise and thoughts pass away. And in a psychedelic experience, thoughts arise and thoughts pass away. Experiences arise, experiences pass away. Breathtaking, overwhelming, amazing insights pass away. And being boiled alive in the 15th century in a prior lifetime and dying in terrible pain passes away so there's a lot of overlap between a psychedelic experience which is absolutely internal to the mind and normal meditative experience which is observing and participating with the mind i've just been struck by a, a recent beautiful article and one comment was mountains and valleys pass away thoughts pass away and it was saying don't get caught with assuming there's a lot of difference hmm. and I, i'm still working with that because it, it it shifts meditation from trying to achieve anything to not, and also to takes it away from trying not to achieve anything to simply realizing that psychedelics are simply another manifestation of things arising and passing away does that make sense to you yeah what is so impressive about the psychedelic experience and what constitutes the turning up of the of the volume is largely this difference in the apparent power of thought people go through their lives you know, vaguely aware that they're thinking all the time and, and that their thoughts have, have some determinative effect on, on the quality of their experience. They're aware they're having a conversation with themselves. And then once they take up meditation, they begin to become more sensitive to that and its consequences, and they can see thoughts arise and pass away. And yeah, that all becomes fairly familiar. The difference is on psychedelics, you know, thoughts are have an energy and a power over the the character of experience that is so complete that it's i mean it's it's like to call them thoughts is to to not indicate the nature of the experience i mean it's like right. it, it, having a gang of of thugs come into your room and murder you is closer to what it is <laughs> than than simply calling them bad thoughts um or unpleasant thoughts 
to be able to find equanimity in the midst of that. I mean, to really not resist. I mean, the, you know, it, it's one thing to say, yeah, resistance is your is your enemy here, and you just you should just give that up. But it is an amazing shift in one's experience and just in the dynamics of of the mind to actually not resist when things become difficult and and to understand you know intuitively the the difference between resisting and not when when the 10,000 things are appear uniformly ugly at that moment well remember the example i gave is you feel you're dying hmm. <clears throat> that's a very real feeling and your guide says eh, you know it's fine don't worry about it or wow that's wonderful and you begin to reorganize even inside a psychedelic experience, how you're taking it. And I remember, personally, I'm on a psychedelic, and I feel like I'm dying. And I think, oh, I'm smarter than that. I know this is LSD, and I know that feeling, and it feels so wonderful when you get past it. And the inner voice says, no, this time is different. This time you're really dying. And I said, out of prior experience, oh, I know that too. I know that second voice, and it's a trick. And then the voice said, it usually is a trick, but not this time. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was, dealing with my own death hmm. uh, at a time when I assume it was totally inappropriate and would be very hard on the people in the room and so forth and so on. And I had to to give up the, uh, you see, if you notice in my kind of smart ass comments about knowing about it, my, my ego is perfectly capable of walking right over those yeah. because the overwhelming experience that happens after the feeling that one is dying is something that the, the mind doesn't, is not capable, it's not designed to resist. So, so I want, Jim, I want to move on to a, discussion of the about the nature yep. of the self yep. and how you think about that but uh, is there anything we we haven't said about psychedelics that you think would be useful to touch on um and since you haven't brought it up there is probably other than perhaps huxley in the 60s in describing what a high dose experience is like there is um, available on YouTube, Sam, you, describing your recent high-dose experience. And it is, it's really a masterpiece of how one can use language to encompass the indescribable. And if you're serious about trying to understand what people are talking about when they say mystical, out of this world, the 10,000 things, feeling of being immortal, all those kinds of things which from the outside don't have a, a referent. Hmm. I strongly experienced. And you will probably both be more interested and you will actually, if you then have such an experience, you will have it a little easier because Sam has really laid out a lot of the things you see on the path. Okay. Oh, I nice. Did want to say well, that. I, I'm uh, I'm very glad that uh, that met with your approval. That's that's great. <laughs>
That's high praise indeed. Maybe, maybe, well, people can probably find that. I think it's on YouTube under just if you search my name and Mushroom Trip. Let me put it a different way. I was really blown away by it. So. Yeah, well, it's it's not for the faint of heart, the experience, but it's um, it's something that uh, I'm very glad I did after 25 years. And um, I think I will do, do it again. But it's, you know, as you say, this is not the sort of thing one wants to do all that often. And I share your, your thoughts on an appropriate suspicion of one's motives if one really feels the need to do that kind of thing often. It really can't be a matter of your streaming service uh, going down or uh, right. you've binge-watched everything in sight and you, you can find uh, nothing else of interest. But uh, let's talk about the context in which we are all um, having these adventures and uh, misadventures, which is the default experience that virtually everyone has of being a self in the world or being an apparent self in the world. And uh, you, you've just, as I said at the top here, co-authored another book about the nature of the self and its its multiplicity. And the, and the multiplicity of, of selves is not something that we talk about very much. There's certainly no general agreement in the culture that the self is not unitary. In fact, I think most people's association with the, the, this very concept will be limited to the, the idea of multiple personality disorder and this pathology, whether real or, or uh, mythologized, of divided identity, uh, which one occasionally sees in, in movies and, and literature. So uh, walk me into this thesis, Jim. How do you view the self and its uh, healthy and unhealthy forms at this point? Very simply, the, the idea that you have a unified self, while quite popular, lacks any evidence. And let me give you an example. Have you ever argued with yourself? Yes. Who is the other person arguing? I'd never thought about it. That's one of the ways you begin to notice your own internal divisions. And there's dozens of other moments when that occurs. One is when you shift from, say, a hard-driving, hard-working, high-tech self to going home and being with human beings. And you notice that you, you need to make a shift because the person who has been looking at the screen all day is not the person who your wife married. And we also know, even the falling in love, we often become nicer people. We actually become somewhat different people. So that's, that's the very simple basic. And the fact that there is something called multiple personality disorder, just linguistically, one would assume there is something called multiple personality order. And there is. There is. It's called association or cohesion or integration. And it is taking the different threads of yourself and finding what's the best self to be in at any given moment. Now that's that's part of the goal. The goal is to have the different parts of you which have different capacities operate in the right ways. 
So the part of you, the part of you that can lie on the floor and have small children jump on you is different from the person who needs to to fend off a very strong physical danger. These are very different. Until the children and really start jumping. <laughs> right, unless they're jumping really hard. My six-year-old six occasionally kicks me in the face when we're wrestling, and, uh, uh, and then the two selves coincide. And you're about to forget that he's six and he's your child because there's a part of you that snaps into action to protect itself. And, and I confess having an eight-pound dog who is one of the most lovable beings on earth except when he totally loses it and becomes this scary little vicious monster, I watch cells in, in animals. It's much more easy to see because you don't have a preconception. So what I'm looking at and why we did about this is because when people begin to see they called inconsistencies, how could I have done this? Mm. I, that wasn't, you know, I just wasn't myself that day. Statements like that where you're clearly seeing other selves, but you're trying to stuff it into the kind of unified self-assumption. Life becomes one more, more clearer. It's easier to function if you see things clearly. We know that there's something called prejudice. Prejudice is I don't need to see the facts. I've already set up a world in which things look the way I choose them to look. And we all know that prejudice, prejudging, not looking at the actuality, um, is a major human defect. So this book is a, a few dozen ways of realizing the reality of multiplicity makes your life work better. It's a pragmatic book. It's not a theory. Mm. It's thousands of observations from neuroscientists, from philosophers, from religious figures, from entertainment figures, that we are different selves. And what we found is, from the reader feedback, is just reading this shifts my ability to see. And what it shifts is it allows me to forgive in myself parts that I don't like. And I can instead begin to find out what do they need and how can the rest of us help. So that, for instance, if you've ever been to an AA meeting, and it's a very moving experience to be there, people come in with their alcoholic self. My name is Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. That's the way you introduce yourself at any AA meeting. Now, you might also say, and I haven't had a drink for 20 years, because the, the alcoholic, the, the, the self that drank, is the one that comes. On the other hand, if you're a psychotherapist, Someone comes in and says, you know, I drink, and in the morning I am so guilty, and I'm so ashamed, and it hurts my family, and I may be losing my job. Can you help me? And the therapist says, I can help you. But what the therapist never gets to meet is the alcoholic, because the alcoholic has a perfectly good time drinking and doesn't have a hangover and doesn't feel guilty, because that's why they can do it the next day. So this is... This is, this is actually, although it sounds radical, it's actually the way psychology began, with a full understanding of selves. And that's where this, this word of association, disassociation. Mm. You think of a, a bundle of, tele, of, of, of cords or of, of wires, say in a, in a telephone, if one still has a telephone with a line in it. 
they're bundled together and they work effectively as a single instrument. But each one of the wires has a different function. And that's, that's the model. And that, when you then look at what happens in a high-dose psychedelic, is the ability of each self to, to become more flexible is enhanced. And so when people use psychedelics therapeutically, they are learning to reorganize their self-structure so that it's easier for the right self to appear at the right time. Uh, we have this wonderful term, I lost my temper. Hmm. So the reason it's wonderful is it's totally wrong. It's I found my temper. That's what it means. But I didn't want to find it because it behaves very badly and I, I don't behave that way. So I call it my temper. But when you're angry, you feel entirely yourself. And what you are is you are. You're, you're that part of you. You're that part of you that was wounded, that you're part of it that is sad. Anger almost always covers fear. And so when you're working with someone who's angry, you first thing is find out what are they usually afraid of. And the most likely fear is I'm not loved. And then when you go back into childhood, you find what we all did to create other selves that were more lovable than the one our parents disapproved of. Or we strengthened the ones our parents disapproved of and, and, and our life looked that way. So that's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book about selves understanding mm. leading to self-acceptance. And then the wonderful next piece is you look at the person you live with. Why does she do that? I have told her a hundred times that it's a da, da 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 And the answer is that a part of her does that and most of her doesn't. So that you begin to have more compassion for yourself and other people. And it also allows people back in your life. Most families have someone, say an Uncle Albert, who people said, you know, I really liked Uncle Albert, but 15 years ago, he cheated my dad in a real estate deal, and we've never spoken to him since. The, the way of understanding that is the part of Uncle Al that cheated the father, we don't know why, we don't know the situation, but we know that most of Uncle Al is the same Uncle Al that we all loved. Mm. And when you begin to think that way, you are, you're not more forgiving, you're more aware and more compassionate. Now, this is obviously different from the, the Buddhist concept, which is that there is no self and there are no selves. This is a little more observational, less theoretical. Mm. And that's, that, okay, that, that's enough of a long answer for a very straightforward question is what is in that book? No, no, it's, it's great. It's, I, I want to traverse that ground again, I think, because I, to clarify what is being claimed here or could be claimed. And, and I, I do think there's, you, you could certainly be reconciled with Buddhism or, or the, the contemplative deliverances of Buddhism or meditation. But it can sound very spooky. And I think there's, there's, there's spooky variants of this claim that the self is, is multiple. Yeah. And so um, let me just see if I can find the boundaries here. Because I, I, th I think the words we use uh, really determine a lot. For instance, prior to this conversation, I, I would tend to think of multiplicity in terms of the phrase of self-states, which is something you, you mentioned in the book. And so rather than 
than multiple, you know, reified selves, the mind and brain is a theater in which various states of self can arise. And the self is more of a verb in, in that case, whether it's single or, or multiple, than it is a noun. And so you have these, these shifting collections of competencies and, and experiences, right? And so you might notice in yourself that in certain circumstances or in certain roles or with certain people, you have available to you one range of experience. And then when you're in other circumstances or other roles or with other people, you have a very different range of available ways of being, right? Like you, you can, your, your sense of humor can be present or absent in a certain relationship or your feelings of confidence or, or feelings of imposture. I mean, it's like, like, and they, there can be significant swings in affect and just your sense of your own personhood. And it really can be as simple as walking through the door of a specific building. I mean, this, this is something I, I talked about briefly somewhere on, on the Waking Up app. I mean, I've noticed this in myself at many points in my life, but at one point where it became excruciatingly vivid, I was in graduate school and, you know, by various metrics, I was succeeding and failing spectacularly. I was on on one level the the most successful and the least successful person in my in my graduate program, you know, in the same hour because, you know, on the one hand I was becoming a famous author and felt the benefit of that psychologically, right? I felt the confidence of that. I was I, I and I was, you know, being asked for advice by the people at the top of the pecking order in the ivory tower, but at the same moment I had stepped away from my research and I was late you know, on everything. And I was becoming a cautionary tale for what, what happens to a person when he just starts writing books prior to finishing his PhD. And who knows if I'm, I'm actually going to get back to doing the research and, and actually successfully graduate. And so literally within the, within the span of a single hour, I could have a meeting with my advisor, you know, Mark Cohen, wonderful person, where I would feel, you know, about six inches tall in terms of, you know, the progress I was making. And then, you know, later that day, have a meeting with his boss, who's asking me advice about how to publish his own book. And, you know, I feel like I'm on top of the world. And it's purely some framing of the circumstance that has come online for me. But it, it's not a multiplicity of selves in the sense that I no longer have an awareness of these changes, right? It's like I, I, I remember who I was an hour before. I remember how I felt. I have cognitive access to those two channels in my mind, but they really are different channels. I mean, like unless you unless you can learn some technique to bridge them, you are effectively a different person. One person is neurotic, and the other really isn't. And uh, people spend their lives trying to get to the selves that they have met in their own minds that they like to be, and they try to they spend a lot of time trying to avoid the wounded selves that they don't enjoy. And to think of the self as multiple there is seems appropriate, but it, it does seem like it's, these are fluid states of the brain, obviously, right? And different competencies come online and, and fall offline depending on the underlying neural activity. But that brings us to, to aspects of this that could be genuinely spooky, which is to say that there there can be islands of awareness and islands of of memory where 
the left hand really doesn't know what the right hand is doing or was doing uh, in some sense, because for that not to be the case, we would have to have perfect integration in the brain, right? Have to, you'd have to have perfect sharing of information across these different states. And, you know, to take one cut at this uh, neuroanatomically that's probably involved in what we're talking about, you're, you're talking about the, the left and right hemispheres of the brain being effectively different selves insofar as mm -hmm. they're not perfectly integrated. And we know, I mean, in, in a split brain case, they're not integrated. And we see that the consequences of their being separated, I mean, they, they are different selves in a very material sense and psychological sense. But even within an intact corpus callosum, we know that information sharing can't be perfect. And if it's ever great, it's not always great. And so there can just be shifting resources that are not shared at all points in time by these various self-states. And so it's, you know, what you write in your book is, seems, you know, very relevant to having a, an accurate picture of the mind at this point. You know, I only wish I could have um, had this conversation with you before I finished the manuscript because I'd, I'd, I'd use some quotes instead of some mm -hmm. of the ways we talked about it. And by the way, the, the term selves is an arbitrary one. We have one page where we have, I think, 50 different terms that are found in the literature, self-states being one that, that works for you. And, and le But let's get spooky for a moment because once the selves are not communicating, that is called a disorder. That's a mental illness, and it's usually a lack of memory. Yep. And we all have heard and maybe experienced the story of waking up in the morning, and we look around and we think, how did I get here? Sometimes we turn to the other person and wonder who that is. Now, we understand that somebody got you to that bed, and it was you, but it's not the you that woke up. So there is this, this, as you're talking about, these parts which are sufficiently divorced as to be troublesome, and that's an illness. But let me give you a nice spooky example. This is someone who was in a, a hospital for mental illness with what's called a disassociation disorder, which is their cells are sufficiently separate and not functioning well that this hospital. And... This was reported by Danny Goldman uh, in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it, it revolves around one of the selves called Timmy. And Timmy uh, likes orange juice. Timmy is about 11. The whole body is, is, is much older. And he likes orange juice. No problem. He drinks orange juice. His life goes on. But if one of the other selves takes over the, the body system, it breaks out in hives. None of the, only Timmy doesn't have hives. And literally, if when the body has, is exhibiting hives, if Timmy is brought back in to kind of run the body, the hives go away. Okay? That's spooky. Hmm. Okay? But it, what it makes clear, when you watch an extreme, what you're looking for is how does that relate to normal? And it relates to normal in exactly the way you've been describing it. So that what we're looking at is the reason we look at abnormal psychology and abnormal is because they are extremes of normal states. Yeah. And yeah. what what we want and what you described is you want to be able 
to be in the right self at the right time. Yeah, I think it's useful to emphasize that point you just made because what we call normal is always on a continuum with pathology, right? And there's no bright line between the normal and the abnormal. And we're talking about degrees of functionality here and and degrees of suffering. And in, in one context, something that could be viewed as pathological, in another, it could be viewed as a kind of asset. And there may be no true bright line to draw between health and disease in, in certain cases. And in any case, we just have to recognize we're all on a spectrum. And one place where we can see the spectrum of pathology is, is, is available to everyone every night of their lives is in this phenomenon we call dreaming, right? Which is so close to psychosis as to be, you know, indistinguishable for, in, in my book, right? I mean, the fact that you're asleep in your bed and you are so unaware of that, that you can be convinced that you are elsewhere fighting with your ex-spouse or talking to someone who you should remember is dead, but you can't remember that because you have no access to your you know, waking memory. You are psychotic, but for the fact that you're safely under your sheets and not roaming around the city streets talking to yourself. And then, then the fact that you can have this intense experience and within seconds, though you're trying to remember it, you can fail to remember it, right? It can be driven from memory by some principle of um, cognition that you have almost no control over. This is absolutely bizarre, and yet it's totally unremarkable, right? And and you can see correlates of this in, in waking life where, you know, if you're feeling a certain way, you know, let's say depressed, that can have a kind of hallucinatory property which causes you to forget that there's any other way to feel or that you ever felt another way. I mean, that you, like, implicit in many states of consciousness is the suggestion that you're going to feel this way for the rest of your life. And that can obviously increase the pain of, of negative states and increase the delusion of positive states. So and we, we do touch upon you know, frank pathology, even within the normal bandwidth of so-called healthy consciousness, all the time. And it gets exaggerated in the cases that we recognize to be symptoms of mental illness or, or pathology. And, and it's, it's, avail- it's even closer. I mean, dreams are a fascinating world. That, but if you, if you look at yourselves, this is a thing I've seen in my family, and we see it very clearly, is I misplace my keys. Okay? And I look in the usual places that I put them, and I then you put, look in the usual places that I misplace them. And then I say quite loudly, Dorothy. She says, yes. And I said, can you help me find my keys? And many times, and this happens both ways, at that moment, I will know where the keys are. Because at that moment, I've let go of the self that doesn't know where the body put them down because the self that's looking for them is a different self. Just to clarify here, Jim, do you have a wife named Dorothy, or do you have an alternate self that you've named for for this purpose? <laughs> there are people who have alternate selves, and you can do that as well, right. which you can simply, when you misplaced something. Remember, if you misplaced it, what that means is you placed it. Yeah. You just don't know where you placed it, but part of you does because it did it. And so it's a matter of getting back into that self. 
or into that self-state. So in a sense, the, the problem we had with this book is it takes about two minutes for most people to get that they have selves or self-states. And then they say, well, why did you write a whole book? And the answer is because the culture hasn't taken it on as a, as a, as a more sensible, realistic, explanatory method. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because at least one of my daughters said, Dad, you have to write this book because they've grown up with this. And again, let me give you an example. She's a, a professor of, in, the, in the geological sciences and has been teaching online. And she was editing a, a lecture she gave. And she said to herself, my goodness. What an extensive vocabulary. <laughs> and then she realized that the part of her that was doing the editing was not the, per the person who'd done the lecture. But of course, they, they live together and they share memories and so forth. So it, it also relates again to, to what we call in the psychedelic world now integration, which is how do you want to put yourself back together in the best way? And even, and I, I, you, you may step on me for this, but it seems to me that one of the reasons that I hear most people say I meditate is because of how I'm feeling when I come out of it. And what it is, is they've moved into a quiet, contemplative, healthier self. And therefore, that's who comes out of the meditation and that's who they prefer to be. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that, that certainly an experience one can have, no question. I guess, so maybe I should just say something about this notion that the self or selves might be an illusion. There's cer certainly a type of self, or there's one thing that, that many people can mean by the term self that is an illusion, that is not there to be found, and finding it absent can be the really the punchline of contemplative life. But that doesn't mean that every use of the term self is inappropriate or you know, naming an illusion. I think, I think there are many ways in which we should talk about the self as a construct or a process that does cover you know, real phenomenon, right? And so I, I think what we're talking about here are the, these differences in experience that get sort of canalized predictably, you know, whether it's based on role or based on circumstance. You know, I have no problem calling those different selves or, or different self-states. But the, the illusory aspect of this, the thing that gets cut through in, in meditation practice and re really is just synonymous with, with meditation at a certain point, is this the sense that there's a subject in the middle of experience, that there's a subject in the head that is aiming attention at experience. That can fall away. Whatever the, whatever the character of one's experience, whether one's feeling the bliss of an expanded LSD trip, or one is feeling the, the cramp of having just been made angry or embarrassed a moment ago, if you look for this, this implied center and fail to find it, you can fail to find it in a way that really is decisive, which just opens you to this experience of consciousness without center. And that's meditation, which again is it's, it's somewhat orthogonal to everything we're talking about because it, it can be experienced in the midst of any experience and, and it can punctuate any experience. But it is in fact true that the more you do that, 
that begins to determine the quality of experience because there are certain experiences that are right. are predicated on being taken in by the illusion of this particular illusion of self, right? And so, you know, feeling neurotic in all the usual ways is, um, you know, largely predicated on taking yourself to be this particular self. And the freedom that comes with meditation is in traversing that fake boundary enough so that you're, you're doing that less and less. But again, it's this phenomenology you're talking about of there being multiple capacities that come online and come offline reliably that we can think about mm -hmm. as different selves. That is a, it's its own kind of stratum that I, where, where we can, we, I think we can talk about selves coherently and it, there really is no contradiction between that and, you know, cutting through the illusion of, of, of there being a, a, a subject in any, in any instance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's what, what you're aware of is the question of kind of practicality, which is, who am I right now? Which is, how does that person behave? And is that the, the optimal for right now? And that's a question we're always asking ourselves, but most of us don't know that we can move between selves by deep breathing, by meditation. And again, we have a page of about 40 different methods people use. But what you're looking at is a, a way of appreciating your own capacity. And what we find in, in the most successful people that we know who are um, you know, good in five different areas, and, how, and what they are very aware of is they know how to switch from one area to another. And they know, in a sense, how to maximize the time that they're spending in any given self-state. And that's an, that's an incredibly valuable skill to acquire. And the first step, as you're pointing out, the first step is to acknowledge the possibility of it. So yeah. that once you acknowledge the possibility of it, and, and, and we use a kind of very simple model. Remember, uh, there's still actually people who do it, but the earth really isn't flat. Okay? Because, and people don't fall off the edge. But it looks like it's pretty flat. It looks flat in most cases. And even if you go to the ocean, mostly it looks flat unless you're watching those ships disappear, you know, over the horizon. But once you know the earth is round, a whole lot of other things become possible. Navigation, trade, mm -hmm. communication, so forth. In astronomy, we used to believe, and it looks that way, that the earth is the center of the universe. And there was this terrible moment when astronomy was good enough to be measuring the motion of planets, but we still had an Earth-centered assumption, like the assumption of a single self. And they drew orbits. Now, it's hard to figure out how you would draw an orbit centered around the Earth when it isn't true. And the answer is you'd have these weird orbits with little whirls in them and, and things off to the side and strange events that made no sense. As soon as we became heliocentric, or the sun was the center of the solar system, all of a sudden everything got clear, and science moved forward, because it was simply dealing with the actual, not the, the illusion. And so the single self is hides, when you have it as a, as a theory, it hides 
capacity of your own cells and your own self capacity to use them. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I'm struck by the the importance of of that point that having a different model allows for things that that having the wrong model simply renders impossible. And 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 I think the place you started is is a very interesting one. The fact that it it unlocks the door to compassion in ways that might surprise us. Yeah. When we think of the people we don't like or the people who have done us wrong as uni- unitary selves, uh, and you can add to that the, the you know this notion of free will, you know that they really are the authors of their actions. So that you know the, the buck really stops there, and there's only one place for it to stop. That is sort of the, the maximal circumstance of allowing for the the total breakdown in relationship and the total unavailability of compassion. Whereas if you see people as much more of a confluence of influences and a multiplicity of selves, then you can recognize that the person you loved is still there, even in circumstances where they have failed you in some discrete sense. And, you know, the, the culpability need not spread to every aspect of the person, right? And you can address the limitations of a person uh, rationally without, you know, condemning them for all time to be, you know, represented by their worst moment in, in life. So yeah, and we're great. really good at that when it's our children. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we don't demand that our children are terrific all the time. And when your child, who is this beautiful divine being that curls up in your lap and says, oh, I love you so much, Daddy, is lying on the floor, kicking their feet, turning blue, and it's an argument over asparagus, okay? We immediately rise above that. We may not, maybe not immediately, but at some point we get back to that's part of my child. And by accepting my whole child, I get to continue to love this child. And it's easier somehow with children. But then you begin to apply it, as you just did, with your spouse or in a relationship. And the idea that you cut someone out of your life, out of one act at one time, as if that's all they ever do, simply, obviously, that's a f- that, that in the way we're talking, that's foolish. That's just mm-hmm. missing the point. Well, Jim, this is fascinating terrain and, and all too consequential. I'm now mindful of um, y- your time. Um, is there anything we haven't touched uh, on this topic that you think we should get into? Well, I guess I just wanted to to make it clear because it's it's only become clear to me really since I've been working with people, working reading the book, is that it is a necessary skill, especially for people who are working in psychedelics, because the notion of being able to integrate selves in a healthier way is at the core of psychotherapy. It's at the core of almost all self-help systems. It's not necessary at the core of certain meditation systems. Hmm. Meditation systems more are can we let go of, of, of attachments that don't serve us? And that's another way of looking at the same question. Can we, let, can we put things in their proper place where we and they are most effective? So I'm really a pragmatist and it's wonderful to 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 look at this from a psycho-emotional and spiritual and neurological, but it comes down to what would I do to make my life 
more compassionate to myself and to other people and and if all i need to do is is understand this concept and there's a book out there and there's probably you know we refer to a couple of hundred other books that get it we think partially that's good that's good mm-hmm. to have that it's good to know it and it makes a lot of craziness suddenly understandable and a, a little exercise is think of somebody you don't like maybe a public figure someone personal and see if you can see that that's just a part of them and if you do that you're home free and mm. it's been really wonderful sam being with you uh, yeah i likewise. have been right and it's likewise. true we do run the same in the same kind of tracks we just haven't spent enough time with each other yet no no there's some i'm consoled by the fact that there's there's some adjacent universe where we spent a lot more time together but um it's really it's a pleasure to reconnect with you and uh you thank you for the work you've you've been doing and you have done and and just the wealth of understanding you've brought to these issues because it came way too late but this renaissance of of interest in psychedelics in particular and just uh you know a positive conception of psychology in general. I mean, just the fact that psychology need not be a story of all that's wrong with us forever. It can be a story of all that is right with us or may yet be right with us. It's been so long in coming, and, you know, the work you've done in the beginning and through the through the dark ages and now up until this moment where we're, we're standing in, in something like a, a beam of sunlight, uh, it's really been incredibly valuable. So, so thank you, Jim. Well, thank you for framing it that beautifully. I was aware that one of the things I also did was help found transpersonal psychology, which was a psychology of the whole, the yeah. whole self, selves, non-self, and larger view of the world. So it's great. It's it really it's it's such fun to hang out with you, and uh, we do share in in a lot more ways than I would have than I anticipated. And so mm-hmm. this was really fun for me and. And obviously, I always hope useful. Nice. Well, to be continued, Jim. Thank you. To be continued. <laughs>